Hosea chapter 7, verse 11. You know, the Lord is continuing an indictment upon Israel for its rebelliousness against God. And um, goes into some greater detail in this last section of chapter 7. Begins in verse 11 where it says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation has heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, Yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. They assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return but not to the Most High. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. The seventh chapter of Hosea describes a people that are loved by the Lord but have rejected his love and every effort he has made to help them and to heal them. You can go to verse 1 where, he, where, where the Lord himself says, what, When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity, of, uh, the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria. And it goes on to describe the kind of sin that they committed. And each and every day, and, and this is the sad part of this whole, this whole book, is that each and every day they rejected the Lord by living and doing exactly what they wanted through deception and falsehood, through, op- uh, through oppression of their own people and thievery, as we saw last time. In effect, they wanted God to act on their terms and not according to the terms and conditions of his covenant with them. And the covenant was very simple. Obey my word, obey my commandments, and I will bless you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will guard you. I will love you. I will prosper you. That's a pretty simple covenant, I think. God is saying, I'm going to do all these things if you just obey me. But what does it reveal about the heart of man? It's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easier to say, you know, I'm going to do those things than to do them. The Apostle Paul himself went through that kind of struggle. You can read about it in in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of, of, of Romans. Where he struggles so much within himself. You know, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he describes the wrestling between the flesh and the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And that was something that was, was uh, a daily occurrence in many cases. Even though we know the Apostle Paul was one who loved God with all of his heart. And the reality is we don't really see in Scripture that he was ever bound to some great sin in his life. But he would be the first one to tell you, as he has done, that he was the chief of sinners. That he was the the lowliest of the sinners. 
It reveals the kind of heart that actually we should all have, a heart of humility. But the people of Israel had willfully forgotten the goodness and the mercies of God. Because from the very beginning, God was merciful, God was gracious, God was good to his people. There's no doubt about what we see from Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Torah, how God loved his people. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, he tells them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He said, and I chose you not because you were the biggest and the greatest of all nations, but simply because I loved you. He chose them to use them, to be a light to the Gentiles. And we have to consider the very fact that we who are believers in Jesus Christ have been chosen by God as well to be a light to all those who are around us. To be a light to the Jew and also to the Gentile. But they had willfully forgotten the goodness and the mercies of God, but most importantly, they had forgotten that the Lord doesn't forget our sin. We spoke about this last time. God doesn't forget the things that we've done against him. You know, we, we are hoping against hope if we sit back and think, well, God, you know, somewhere down the line might forget all the things that I ever did, you know, that I haven't actually confessed to him, that, that I haven't really brought out in the open with him. But again, that's hoping against hope, isn't it? Because God doesn't forget. But he will forgive, won't he? We're sitting here today, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're sitting here today forgiven. Because our God, the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth, our God sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, in Jesus Christ, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Within that whole understanding, we see that God has forgiven us. The shed blood of Christ has been just that, shed for the remission and forgiveness of our sins. So he will forgive any and everyone who will come to him with a repentant heart, one who comes sorrowfully to God. Salvation is not something to play around with, as we'll see later. Salvation is something that God gives that we don't deserve. There's not one aspect of salvation that we deserve. Well, I should say there is one. If we don't come to Christ, then we deserve death. We deserve death and eternal separation from God. We deserve the punishment for our sins because we committed them. But the Lord said, I sent my son. He is going to take your sins upon himself. And if you believe in that, that simple truth of believing in Jesus Christ and believing not just in the, in the mental aspect of our life, but in, in the whole of our life, to believe with all of our heart that what he did on the cross was for us, then we shall be saved and we won't perish. Psalm 86 verses one through five is, a, is just a little passage of something that, that the psalmist David speaks of in, in and of himself. He, he, he brings out this very aspect of God's forgiveness when he says, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me. He cries out to God, he says, listen to me, Lord, for I am poor and needy. Boy, that goes against the grain of every word of faith teacher that there's ever been. David says, I am poor and needy. 
Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, David, you're the king. You have everything. You own, you know, you, you got a really nice house and you got all kinds of stuff and everybody serves you and blah, 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 blah. David, as the king, rode a donkey. He didn't ride a horse. The symbol of great, of a great warrior. He rode the simple donkey. And so did Jesus, didn't he? He says, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. Now, what he means is I've separated myself from this world. I've gotten away. I set myself apart for you. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Now there's a lesson that we need to take from David. That he cries unto God every day of his life. He cried unto the Lord because he realized who God was and is. And in the realizing of who God was and is, he also realizes who he is in the presence of a holy God. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good. Now listen to what he says. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. That's our God. Ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. What a lesson Israel could have learned from the psalmist King David. But remember, they had gotten away from the land of Judah, from the city of David itself, and they went north to worship other gods. And still the people burned, as we saw last time, they burned in their evil and adulterous lusts and their passions under the guise of performing their pagan religious ceremonies, <coughs> pleasing their wicked kings and princes who were in no way connected to that true royal line of Judah, by the way. The people revealed the fact that they were not committed to the true and living God of all Israel, mixing and compromising with the unbelieving nations around them, and even turning their brethren from the southern kingdom of Judah away from trusting and serving the Lord, as we saw in the last chapter. They became a terrible influence for Judah. Their arrogance and their pride were self-incriminating. Their sense of self-importance kept them from admitting their sin and confessing their need for the Lord. Arrogance and pride would be their doom. But arrogance and pride would not only be the doom of, of these people thousands of years ago, arrogance and pride is the doom of everyone in this present age as well. That is why in verse 10 of this chapter, in Hosea 7, verse 10, it says, And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face. It's as if their pride and arrogance is just stuck in the face of God. And they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. They're far beyond God now. They're learning to be their own gods. But we know what the scripture says about pride, as in Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19, where it says, pride goeth before destruction. You want to live by, by pride, then expect destruction. It's going to come. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A haughty spirit is a lofty and arrogant spirit. But in verse 19, it says, better it is to be of a humble spirit. I've actually heard Word of Faith teachers say to their congregations, God doesn't want them humble. He doesn't want them 
to have a spirit of humility. They're God's children now. They're God's people. They're, God's, they're the king's kids, as they, they call them. That's not to come down on a little group called king's kids. But it's just to say, they're the king's kids, you know. They, they, they can go beyond this aspect of humility because everything now belongs to them as well. Please understand that, that the word of faith prosperity teaching is, is very deep and deeply rooted in self being greater than being humble. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. One preacher goes around in front of his congregation and says, hey, listen, you want blessing? Then you better pay up. That's pride, folks. That's simple pride. And people are eating it up like if it is truth. But pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, it says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance, you notice what is mentioned first when it talks about evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. A, 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 or a forward mouth is a perverse mouth. A perverse mouth. And this was the attitude in the northern kingdom of Israel as they're coming closer and closer to their destruction, as they're coming closer and closer to captivity by the Assyrians. It brings us now to the tragedy of deception and misplaced trust. The tragedy of deception and misplaced trust. Look at verses 11 and 12, the text for us tonight. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. The fact that Ephraim or Israel is called a silly dove meaning that they were senseless and simplistic, reflected a character of being easily deceived. That's the whole point of them being a silly dove. They were easily deceived. They were being silly, they were senseless, they were simplistic. By the way, doves can be enticed. Doves can be enticed into traps by the appeal of food. In the same way, Israel was seduced by the wealth and the power and the fame of Egypt and Assyria. Now, we need to understand that down through the centuries, the Lord had permitted Israel to trade with other nations, but they were never to enter treaties with unbelieving, oppressive, or cruel nations. We read in Leviticus 20, verses, uh, verse 26, it says, And you shall be holy unto me. Now he's speaking to the whole nation of Israel. And he says, And you shall be holy unto me. In other words, set apart unto me. For I, the Lord, am holy. Set apart from all of his creation. Above all of his creation, that makes him holy. And have severed you from other people. From the standpoint of where they are to be, in relation to everybody else. Not better, but set apart for God. Set apart to honor Him, to worship Him, to praise Him, to serve Him. I've severed you from other people that you should be mine. So think about the importance of that as believers in Jesus Christ. We're not to belong to the world or the things of the world. 
We're in the world, but not of them. Certainly, we have to deal with people in the world. I mean, you know, we have to buy and sell and, and, and whatnot. But we're not to enter treaties with the world. Consider when the Lord put words in the mouth of Balaam to speak to Balak, the king of Moab. Now, Balaam was, was, was a prophet, but he was out for himself. He was out for, for a prophet. He was a prophet out for a prophet, if you know the difference. He was a P-R-O-P-H-E-T out for a P-R-O-F-I-T. Got it? But in Numbers 23, verse 9, this comes out of the mouth of this prophet because the Lord put these words there. Listen to what he said. He says, For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone. Speaking of Israel, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. They could trade but they were not to enter into treaties with other nations. Because you see, entering treaties and political alliances with those unbelieving and cruel nations would condone the evil and the oppressive ways of the world. And Israel was not to give approval to evil, but rather to bear strong witness to all nations to the only living and true God. But as already stated, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were like mindless birds, easily taken in. And we know that from the very beginning. God had always been their God. God had always been their king, right? God had always been the king of Israel. They didn't need another king. They get into the land that God gives them, the promised land that filled with you know, milk and honey and all. And what's the first thing they want to do? They come to God and they say, we want a king like everybody else. Israel was to bear strong witness to all the nations that their God was the king and the only king and the only true God. In times of need, they simply ignored God. Now we have to ask ourselves that question. Have there been times in our own life that we have ignored God and looked to the world for answers, looked to the world for solutions, looked to the world for some kind of sustenance? Look, we could, we could thank Ronald McDonald or we can thank the Lord, you know, for a Big Mac. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? We can thank that awful king that Burger King uses in their commercials. We can thank him, you know, for a, or we, or we can just thank the Lord, you know, for, for a whopper. You see where we are here? In times of need, the, the children of Israel simply ignored God. They ignored his power. They ignored his promises. And instead of seeking the Lord, they foolishly sought power and wealth of others. They turned to Egypt. And they turned to Assyria for economic prosperity. They turned to them for protection even. They turned to them for wealth when needed. But they would not turn to their Lord and to their God. They would not turn to him. Placing trust in the power and riches of this world is a misplaced trust. We can see it all around us today. This world with all of its power and its wealth is going to fail. 
There is no doubt that that's going to happen. The Bible is very clear that there are going to be days ahead that are going to bring nations down. And God is going to settle accounts with every nation. Nations will be judged. Not just individuals. Nations will be judged. The Israelites were deceived, leading them to ignore the prophets of God and his warnings through them. Consider this progression. Think of this progression. Deception leads to ignoring God's warnings. Israel was deceived, therefore they ignored the warnings of God. Deception leads to ignoring God's warnings. Ignoring God's warnings leads to rejection of the Lord and of his word. Rejection of the Lord and his word leads to what? Placing trust in the world. That's a progression that none of us should ever find ourselves in. And the minute we find ourselves moving in that direction, that's the time to run away from it. For Israel itself, the Lord would pronounce his sentence of judgment upon them by throwing his net of judgment on them. Uh, verse 12. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation, as their congregation has heard. He would throw his net of judgment over them and pull them down like the birds of the air. I want, to, I want you to listen to these scriptures. They're all in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. And I want you to find the common thing that ties these verses together. It's not a hard, it's not a hard test here. You all should get a hundred. You ready? Galatians 6, verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. James 1, verse 22. Here we go, now, now, now you make a comparison. James 1, verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Are, are you getting now the common thread? For if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If you're just a hearer of the word, you're deceiving yourself. That's what James is saying. He just uh, A few verses later, verse 26. Look at James 1, 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now the word religion here is, is used, but it, and it, it's defined for us at the end of chapter 1, what religion is, but we're not, we're not going there. But it, the, the point is, if we do not bridle our tongue, then we're deceiving our own hearts. If we seem to be following a particular spiritual path, we don't bridle our tongue, we're deceiving our own hearts. And whatever we're doing is, is, is vanity. It's all about self and not about anything else. That's the point. First John 1 verse 8. First John 1 verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The whole issue here is what? Deception. Every verse has the word deception in it. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's not talking about just people outside of the church. He's talking, he says us. He uses the word us. Now, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 does not have the word deception. But deception is implied. Because notice what he says. These are the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea. He says, Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Why? Because they're deceived. They've been deceived into thinking that they're rich, that they're increased with goods, and they have need of nothing when they're nothing. They're wretched. They're miserable, they're poor, and they're blind, and they're naked. So what links these verses together? Deception. 
Deception. What is it that Jesus says to the, to the disciples before he goes to the cross at the, at the, at the Olivet Discourse, where, there on the Mount of Olives, when they're asking him questions about you know, the time to come, the latter days, when, when, when it's going to happen and, and all. And what is it that Jesus begins with? He says, don't be deceived. There'll be a lot of deception in the latter days. Four times Jesus uses the word deception in Matthew 24. And that in the first 24 verses. Four times he uses the word deception. The days in which we live today is a day of deception. So what should we do? Well, we should do what the psalmist says in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Do you know that these two verses are the very center of the whole scripture? The very center of all the Bible? These two verses. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes, in earthly rulers. It is better to trust in the Lord. And those two verses, when, when, you, when you do a count of all the words in the Bible, these are the very two center verses of all of the scriptures. In Isaiah 31, verse 1. Isaiah 31, verse 1. It says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe to them. Now we're going to come back to that word woe here in just a minute. Woe is not, is not the, is the same word as what you say to a horse to try to get him to stop. Woe is the Hebrew word oi. We've all heard the expression oi ve. It's, it's the same word, oi. 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 I'm trying to dramatize it. It's really not, not very good. I mean, it's got to be deeper than that. Oy. A woe is something that is of great, great pressure and weight. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust on char in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. How oh, the word of God is so clear that we're not to look to other nations. We're not to look to the strength of other nations, to adapt to, adopt to those things or to adapt to those things and be the same way as other nations. We don't need to be like other nations. We're one people in God and in Christ. Our strength comes from the Lord. Our wisdom comes from God. Our wisdom comes from the power of the Holy Spirit through his word. That is greater than any power on this earth. So what are we doing messing with the world? Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Notice again that progression Trusting in man, rejecting God, you depart from the Lord. Now, in the next portion of our text, the Lord issues another sharp and straightforward warning to the people. God's not done with his warnings. Impending doom was hanging over their heads for their rebellion and their lives spoken against the Lord. In verses 13 through 15, let's look at it. There's the word again. Oi! Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me, though I have redeemed them. And how many times up to this point had God redeemed his people? Had God rescued them and saved them and provided for them? Since the time of their departure from Egypt, through their wilderness experience in 40 years, which shouldn't have been 40 years, could have been 11 days. 
if they had just trusted the Lord. And then time and time again, the battles that they fought, when they try to fight the battles in their own power, God said, okay. Then they'd get badly defeated. What would they do? They'd cry, oh, to the Lord, oh God, you know. Remember when little AI defeated them? I mean, that city was so small, they only had two letters in their name. And they defeated Israel. Because Israel became conceited and arrogant and prideful. God would deal with them. They'd come back. Time and time again, the Lord redeemed his people. So he says, though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. How much more can a people betray their own God? So you see, if we, if we maintain a consistency in the, net, in the text, the people as silly, mindless doves that will be brought down in judgment by the Lord's net, well, they fled from the Lord as birds do from their nest. That's the picture that's being described here. As silly, mindless birds, they fled from their nest, the nest that God had given them, a nest that God had built for them, a nest that God had prepared for them, a nest that God had provided for them, a nest where they were prospered by God if they had been obedient. And they fled from the Lord as birds do from their nest, the very God who could and would have healed them. Verse 1. What did God say? When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. God not only would have, I mean, not only could have, but he would have. Remember that person needed, needed healing from the Lord. And, and you know, if you're willing, Lord. The Lord says, I'm willing. But the fact is, he was also able. God was able and willing to heal. And time and again, that's what Jesus did. God was willing and able to deliver Israel from every situation that they found themselves in if they had just called upon him with a, with a repentant heart. And he could and would have healed them had they committed and applied themselves to him. You know, it isn't just a matter of committing ourselves, because we can commit ourselves many times by, by just the things that we say, but we need to apply that. There has to be application to the words that we say unto God. Not only, Lord, I, I, I want to serve you, I want to, but then we just need to get up and do it. By the way, Proverbs 27, verse 8, gives us a picture of the, the wandering bird. It says, as a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man that wanders from his place. The fact of the matter is, we have a place that God has already prepared for us. Why are we wandering from that place? So as I said, the word for woe, oi, proposes approaching doom. It suggests a doom that is coming, destruction. Notice the, the, the verse there, destruction unto them, verse 13. Destruction unto them, woe unto them, destruction unto them. The basis for this destruction was their rebellion against the Lord. Nevertheless, the Lord loved them and he longed to redeem them. We know that because he's redeemed them before. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They developed their own worldly religion when they went to set up their new temple, their, their, their new uh, uh, altars to worship you know, the gods that now have become their gods. 
They didn't accept the Lord or his word. They were rebelling against the Lord. They neither accepted him or his word. They spoke lies against him. They developed their own worldly religion, which can only be described as a system based on those lies. To rebel against the truth of God and God's way of salvation, they would have, they would have had to teach their own ideas by seeking to become acceptable to God by other means. We don't like God's way, so we're going to do it our own way. Now, the, fa- the, the sad thing is that there are people in the church today that say the very same thing. I don't like the way that God is, is, is wanting me to do this or that. I want to do it my own way. Now, they may not say it out loud, but they're definitely saying it in their minds and some of them in their hearts. I don't care for God's way. I don't want to do it on my own. It doesn't matter, you know, I mean, I go to church every week, I do this, I do that, I give to the poor, I give to the guy on the street, you know, a couple of pennies, whatever. Is that all? So they were seeking to become acceptable to God by other means, the religious beliefs of the other nations surrounding them. We like the way that they do things. Man, they get pretty wild. They, they get, they get you know, I mean, they get excitable, man. They get excited, man. They go, man, they're doing all kinds of weird things. And then, and then they got these sexual rituals, you know. Oh, that's interesting. I think, I think we should pay attention to that, you know. And what does it do? It brings them right down into destruction. Verse 14 says, they have not cried. It should be up here. They've not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. They assemble themselves for corn and wine and they rebel against me. They, they didn't cry unto the Lord God. They cried unto other gods. Now that's the reality. They didn't cry unto the Lord. They cried unto other gods. Now the text could also be describing that they might have been crying unto God but, but not with their heart. So under, understand that these things apply together in a way. Because in the minds of many of these people, whatever God that they were fashioning out of metal or wood or whatever, that was their impression of their God, whether it was a God of Israel or any other God. Don't forget what happened in the wilderness when Moses hadn't come down from the mountain and everybody said, well, Moses has to be dead now. So Aaron, make us, make us a, a, a golden calf so we can worship God. So in their minds, their perception was that God was a golden calf. So either way, they were sleepless with anxiety. As the verse describes, they have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. They were sleepless with anxiety, which is an image of deep affliction and anguish. But not at all. A cry of repentance. Not at all. A cry of repentance and faith. There was no cry of repentance. There was no cry of trust in God. The last phrase of the verse makes it clear that they didn't really cry unto the Lord at all. Invoking their false gods for corn and wine. Remember the the gods of, of, of the nations around them were primarily gods of fertility. That's why the sexual aspect of their religious rituals, fertility, They invoked their false gods for corn and wine in the midst of their physical and spiritual drought and famine. They were physically in drought and famine. They were spiritually in drought and famine. How much more clearly can it be said that those so-called gods were lifeless and totally unable to help? 
How much more clear do we see in Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8? They're very short verses, but notice what it says. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? You know why the, why the world says, you know, looks at the church and says, where's their God now? It's because people in the church aren't looking to their God and trusting in their God for their help. But, I digress. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. Their God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, or feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. A person who trusts in an idol is idol himself. I-D-O-L and I-D-L-E. Idol. Nothing in the nothing in the cupboard. Nothing there. Nothing in the heart. Verse 15 of our text reminds us that the Lord had called and trained and strengthened Israel time and time again. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. Time and time again, Israel plotted evil against God. Why? They plotted in that they made a deliberate decision to turn away from the Lord and to turn to their false gods. Remember, gods that they can see, gods that they can feel, gods that they can touch. But not a god that could do anything for them. So this was a deliberate choosing to forsake the Lord and to give themselves over to their transgressions, to give themselves over to their iniquities, to give themselves over to their false gods and to give themselves over to their false hopes. I don't know what people hope for anymore in this world, but I do know what we hope for. And the very fact that we hope for it means that we hope in the proper way. Biblical hope is having a hope in something that is going to come to pass because God has promised it. And we can be assured that these things are going to happen. Is Jesus coming again? We, he sure is because he said he would. And Jesus never lies. When we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of the coming days, the times in which we're living, have they not all been accurate? I mean, in many cases, even to the very uh, jot and tittles of the words, these things are happening. Is God faithful to his word then? Yes, he is. Is God going to accomplish these things? Yes, that's where we put our hope. Our hope is the blessed hope. Jesus is the blessed hope. That's who we look for. That's who we long for. The world, in having false gods, also have false hopes. They can't put their hope in a, in a, in a God that is deceptive. People today are going to be so deceived when the Antichrist finally appears. So deceived. They are going to think that here is the second coming, here is the Messiah. But it's not so. 
the men who were at the conference at the uh, retreat remember that we talked about the, the rider of the white horse in Revelation chapter 6, the first horse of the four horsemen of the, what they call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a rider on a white horse with a bow in his hand. Strange, no arrows. What does that signify? He comes with a false peace. You read the book of Daniel and you realize that Israel is crying out for peace and they will accept anyone that will bring peace to the Middle East, especially in Israel. And that's what the text tells us is going to happen. Do we see that being set up today? Very much so. Very much so. The people who put prophecy aside and say, well, that's not important, it's not going to, you know, some of that is just allegorical or, you know, metaphoric or whatever. No, no, it's going to happen. It's happening now. By the way, there's an Israel. There is an Israel in the land again. People never thought that was going to happen again, but it did. Why? Because God put them there. Because he's going to get ready to fulfill what he had said he was going to do with his people. He's not done with Israel yet. Hosea is, is, is you know, again, one of, one of those major hiccups of Israel, you know, but God is not going to. We've already talked about the fact that he's going to restore them. Back in chapters 3 and 4. Proverbs 19, verse 5 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. There, there, there's going to be a lot of trouble for those that live by deception, live by lies, and telling those lies. That's why Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your homework is to write next to Jeremiah 17, verse 9 in your Bibles. Write next to it, write the, write the, the reference, Genesis 6, verse 5. That's your homework. Genesis 6, verse 5. Now, interestingly enough, we just mentioned the rider of the, of the uh, white horse, the first horse uh, of, the, uh, of, of the beginning of the tribulation period, as having a bow without arrows. <clears throat> but the people themselves now coming into the verse 16, because this is where we're going to be, the people were like a faulty bow that always misses its target. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, they return, but not to the Most High. That's an interesting statement. They return, but not to the Most High. They're like a deceitful bow, a faulty bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So what, what it's saying here about them is that they were as, an, they were as unreliable as a crooked bow. You know, a, a bow has to be made well, it has to be made firm and strong, and, and, and the string has to be, you know, taut and, and whatnot, and it's got to have some elasticity so it can hurl the, the arrow in, in its right direction. But if, the, but if the bow is crooked, we're not even talking about the arrows, we're just talking about the bow. If the bow is crooked, man, the arrow's going to go well every place else but where the target is. And so what he's saying about Israel is that they were as unreliable as a crooked bow, unreliable in their verbal commitment to the Lord and in their living. They were unreliable because of the way they lived before God. They were unreliable because of the things that they said before God. <coughs> in their very day-to-day -day walk, they lived as the world lives simply by disobeying the Lord and His commandments. And on top of that, they refused to repent and they refused to turn back to the Lord. And so the Lord pronounced judgment on the Israelites. The fact that their princes fall by the sword reminds us of the assassinations that we read about last time in 2 Kings chapter 15. 
So we won't have to go back there. You, you can if you want. But sadly, through the nation's history, the people of Israel had been stubborn and stiff-necked against God. And by refusing to repent, they were boasting in their self-righteousness and in their self-sufficiency. And their reaction to the prophets sent by the Lord was full of scorn and ridicule. I mean, they ridiculed the prophets. Even in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, it talks about the prophets that were killed and slain, some, caught in, some cut in half by their people, not by the, 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 the people of other lands, by their very own people. And then think about what they did to Jesus. What they did was reprehensible. It was inexcusable. They were stubbornly insolent, which means they were stubbornly disrespectful against the Lord and against his prophets. And because of this, they were going to be ridiculed themselves. They would be ridiculed, they would be mocked, and they would be held in contempt by the very people they were seeking aid from. Who were they seeking aid from? Egypt. That's why it says in verse 16, their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. They, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They were mocking the prophets of God. They were ridiculing the, the prophets of God. They were holding the prophets of God in contempt. And now they would be ridiculed. They would be mocked. And they would be held in contempt by the Egyptians for what they did. You see how uh, time and time again we talk about the fact that when, when, we, when we set out a trap to bury somebody, the trap is going to eventually bury us. When a person goes out to set a trap with hatred and, and, uh, and, and disregard for a, a person's life, that's going to come back. The Bible, is that's a principle in the scriptures. You see it in the book of Proverbs. We've been in the book of Proverbs a few times tonight. But there you find, you know, if, if, you, if you set a trap for somebody, you're going to fall into your own trap. Eventually, that's going to happen. So they're just some, these are just some of the consequences of missing the mark. Now, in the New Testament, there, the word for sin is the word hamartia. Hamartia. And, and literally it just means missing the mark. When we sin, we are missing the mark of, of finding our, our strength and our salvation and our protection from God. We're missing the mark. That's what sin is. The true target and the true goal in our lives is to know the Lord. It is simply to know the Lord. This is why it isn't enough to know about him. It isn't enough to have all kinds of, of uh, you know, academic or intellectual understanding of Jesus. It, 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 it's, it's not enough. He wants to know us and he, he wants us to know him. We are to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. These are personal statements to personal people to come to a personal understanding of the love of Christ by knowing Christ and loving Christ and serving Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But if we fail to seek him and to miss the mark of knowing him personally, then what happens? We doom ourselves. We are dooming ourselves. 
There is warning upon warning against neglecting him and the great salvation that he offers us. But consider what the Lord says about not only missing the mark, but also neglecting our service unto him. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. I know that I've quoted part of this in, in our recent studies, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm expanding, and, expanding it a little more. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Notice, it isn't just about saying something, it is about doing something. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I, uh, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Notice, missing the mark and getting to know Christ. I never knew you. Part of what we see today in, in, in theologies that are being expounded in, 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 in very uh, selfish ways, you know, I talked about the word of faith doctrine earlier, but there's other uh, doctrines as well in the church that are off the mark because they're they're, they're seeking to build up the flesh and not bring a good relationship between Christ and the, and the individual person. So there, there's, there's a need for us to understand what Jesus means when he says, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And, and, he, and he nails the problem you're working iniquity, you're working sin in your life rather than hitting the target of knowing who I am. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. When you do the things that the Lord says, and you do it with all your heart, and you do it because you know the Lord, and the Lord knows you. That no matter what you face, it's not going to knock you down. It's not going to tear you down. But notice verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's not going to stand. When you build your house upon sand, it will not stand. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, we're almost done here. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. To give earnest heed means that with all of our heart, we are paying attention to everything that we are reading and studying and listening to as it pertains to the things of Christ. Notice, because it says, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and, the, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And lastly, I want to read Ezekiel 33, verses 7 through 11, and we'll close with this. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, and therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way. You see, the seriousness that the prophets had and the, and the, and the, and the watchmen had of making very clear the word of God to those who were in need to hear it so that they would not perish. He says, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. Speaking to the watchman. But his blood will I require at thine hand, 
Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? Much of what we will read on as we get into the rest of the book of Hosea will be the Lord continuing to remind them that they need to turn, that they need to return to him and turn back to God. Now we can say it's easier said than done, but it has to be done. If we find ourselves slipping away, it's time to wake up. It's time to turn back. It's time to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength again. Because it's easy. Paul said, I wrestle. I wrestle every day, the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Paul also said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The things that we wrestle every day can take us away from the path that we need to be walking in Christ. So let's get back on that path with Jesus because he loves us that much. And if we just turn back to him, he will forgive and he will heal and he will strengthen and he will renew and he will restore. 